This is Sciographies, an introduction to the people who make science happen. I'm your host, David Barkley. I'm an oceanographer with the Faculty of Science here at Dalhousie University. And on Sciographies, I interview different types of scientists about what shaped their interests, their career path, and how they get their research ideas. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Katja Fennell. She's an oceanographer, Killam professor, and chair of the oceanography department here at Dal. Dr. Fennell's research involves the development of physical biogeochemical models, which are tools that can help us better understand and predict the state of the ocean as the climate changes. Dr. Fennell uses her education in mathematics to build these extremely complex predictive models with her team. This episode covers Dr. Fennell's experience growing up behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany, her path to oceanography, and the challenges involved in modeling the dynamic ocean environment. Usually, we kind of start at the beginning, and you have a pretty interesting beginning in the sense that you were born and did all of your schooling in Rostock. That's correct, yes. <laughs> so I need you, I need, and a city that I know nothing about. Okay. I, I need you to paint us a picture of, so, so it's a pretty small town, right, Rostock? It's... Halifax size. Halifax size. Yeah. 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 And it's on the Baltic Sea. Yes. Which is a lovely, lovely body of water. It's sort of brackish, which sounds not so good, but it actually is nice for swimming because um, you can swallow whole gulps of water and it's fine, <laughs> which happened quite a bit when we were kids. And the, the German coast is very well developed. It's like a vacation oh, paradise. Yeah. Very well developed, but yeah. nice sandy beaches, mm -hmm. and it's warm enough to swim in in the summer. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, and, you know, sometimes in the winter, when I was a kid, it would freeze over. Really? Okay. Yeah, not anymore now. Not anymore. No. Familiar too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your family, would you go to the water a lot? Because Rostock yeah. itself is kind of at the head of a of a harbor, quite a long harbor, right? Yeah, that's right. But we actually lived in Warnemünde, which is part okay. of Rostock, but which is really directly at the beach. So I had like a five-minute walk to okay. the beach. So as kids, we would hang out on the beach. All the time. All summer, all the time. And I mean, even in winter, right? We, we, yeah, we spent a lot of time on the beach, for sure. Mm -hmm. And swimming, diving, sailing? Um, swimming and windsurfing. Windsurfing. Yeah. We might call it a, uh, a California-German lifestyle. Well, there was... One rather major difference, I should point out. Um, so Rostock is in the part of Germany that was occupied by the Russians after mm -hmm. World War II. So I grew up behind the Iron Curtain. Big difference to California. <laughs> Slightly. And to get the, the timing right, you would have been in high school when the, the wall came down? Uh, no, I was just about done with high school and just about to start university. In East Germany, all this Students, the university students, mm -hmm. um, were called upon to help in the harvest during the summer break. You know, that first year when I was about to start university, I still had to go, and it was typically um, pick potatoes, get, yeah. get potatoes out of the ground or pick apples. So we went picking apples. Yeah. So I was doing that for three weeks. And then the other um, summer activity for the incoming university students was Three weeks of intensive Marxism-Leninism training. Yeah. So I still had to go through that. And then the wall came down. Like literally in September, the wall came down and everything changed. Right. And, um, what were your, your thoughts and feelings, especially after undergoing that intensive course? How did you feel about the wall coming down? Oh, it was super exciting, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it was amazing. It was, um, I mean, it was probably still, if I think sort of about my life, 
the most significant event that mm-hmm. happened. And it affected everything, right? I mean, opportunities and outlooks and possibilities. I mean, everything changed. Yeah. And it was, you know, there were signs maybe in the six months leading up to it that something maybe was happening. Right. But it, it caught every, like, how quickly it happened, it caught everybody by surprise. Right. Now, when we say the wall came down, we're talking about Berlin, but Rostock itself is not deep into East Germany, but it's relatively, uh, well, it's got to be, what, a uh, few hundred kilometers, 150 yeah. kilometers away from the, from the, border. the border. And yeah. so did you feel that change immediately? Was there Were there people that were now going across the border? So, I mean, just a few months, pretty much after the wall came down, during winter break, we went and stayed with colleagues of my dad's in Kiel, actually. Right. So my dad is an oceanographer, too. Okay. <laughs> and um, he had these professional connections. But, of course, he wasn't, we weren't allowed to travel, right? East right. Germans were not allowed to travel. And um, he just contacted colleagues in Kiel, and they were very welcoming. I mean, it was exciting, not just for East Germans, also for West Germans. It was, yeah. was a major event. Before the reunification... Being in a port city, was there any, and, and being a teenager, was there any mysterious hijinks uh, going on? I mean, you were closer to Copenhagen than you were to Berlin, right? So were you uh, going out on boats and going sneaking anywhere or anything like that? Was well, that a thing that people did? Well, so the borders were pretty tightly controlled, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, sailing was not really a thing people could do because there right. was a lot of red tape. Right. Right. So actually, my grandfather owned a sailboat, but it was a huge undertaking every year to get permission for us to go out. And of course, we weren't allowed to go really out in in the open, open Baltic. There were sort of stories of people who escaped via the Baltic. I mean, it was not a good situation we were in in East Germany, right? Looking back now, and in terms of the hardships of living in East Germany, can you give us some sense of what motivated the risks that people would take to to escape? Yeah, yeah okay, that that's a really good question. Let me try to first describe a little bit sort of this this word this term hardship, right? Is an interesting one because actually, you know, our life wasn't wasn't hard per se, right? We had everything we needed. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of food, you know, we didn't have some of the luxury things. We didn't have yeah. color TV. Um, we didn't have a telephone. Right. But the basic needs were all met, and we also had um, friendships, sort of all, all these things yeah. that make life worthwhile, really, beyond the material things. So it wasn't wasn't like we had a horrible life, mm-hmm. but there were all these things that we couldn't do and, and that we knew were, you know, available on the Western side to West okay. Germans, right? So there was that, but perhaps so, sort of from my perspective, what was even worse was sort of being indoctrinated with something that we knew was was made of lies, right? Yeah. This indoctrination. To me, that was always the more difficult thing to come to grips with. So in terms of what motivated people to skip, I think depends a little bit on the personality. Mm-hmm. So for some, probably it was the material things. Yeah. But I think for some, it was also just this inability to stomach the, um, you know, the injustices and, and the lies and... Yeah. And, you know, you could get in trouble by speaking your mind. I mean, the, those, to me, those were always the harder things. I mean, especially, you know, I, as a teenager, right, yeah, you think right. about the meaning of life and yeah. <laughs> and um, and your role in, in society and your outlook for the future. And so that was, that, that was the toughest thing always, right? And mm-hmm. sort of the strategy that 
that, that I was told is sort of a good one to survive was to just always be average, right? Always be <laughs> average. Don't stick out on either side of the bell curve right. because you invite trouble and difficulties, right? And, right. and you, the strategy was always avoid sort of attracting the attention of um, the authorities because once you once you do that, you know, there's sort of no end of, of trouble. Um, right. And what's the <laughs> level story. of like infiltration of authority? I know, you know, there's a secret police and all this stuff. Yeah. Did, did you, did, was there a certain paranoia even as a teenager oh. that your school report would be written uh, read by? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, every, so this is something that we didn't know at the time, but that became clear after the wall came down. Like every class in grade school had, one or more of the students who were reporting what was being said in the schoolyard. There's this memory I have of high school where we... So one of the subjects was um, so social studies. And of course it was, you know, it was the, a dreaded subject, right? Because it was just propaganda and, and right. ideology. And so we suddenly had a teacher, a young teacher who came in and um, sort of started talking about Gorbachev's book. So, so I mean, you remember that, mm -hmm. right? Gorbachev started mm -hmm. to make changes yeah. in in the Soviet Union. Glasnost. Glasnost and perestroika, yes. right? <laughs> and so we were then supposed to write an essay about that. And I, yeah. I I remember letting my guard down and sort of writing more honestly than I was taught. And then, like immediately after handing it in, I regretted it and was like, "Oh, what did I do? <laughs> I got myself in trouble here. This is not good." And then turned out that that's exactly what he wanted, right? He made me actually read it to, to the whole class. So sort of a teacher who came in was sort of in the Gorbachev mold, right? But yeah. in that old system. Mm -hmm. So he was gone a few weeks later. He wow. suddenly disappeared from one day to the other, right? That wow. was not tolerated. Right. And so then after the change, basically these people who got rid of him were let go and he came he back came in back. and became principal of that school, right? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wow. Un unbelievable. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents? Were yes. they both unified in suggesting that you go towards maybe a physical science, a mathematics? A... I think my dad had was the more influential voice, for mm -hmm. sure. And my mom went along. Yeah. And so, you know, math was not necessarily sort of a passion of mine. I was good at math always. Okay. But it, it it wasn't what I was passionate about, right? I was uh, biology was interesting okay. and art, right? I I mean I was really so I, as a kid I was passionate mm -hmm. about that. You thought you might become an artist. It wasn't encouraged. It was not encouraged. Is it ever encouraged? Well, and you know it also <laughs> it didn't seem like a good idea in that system. Yeah. And so. Me actually choosing math as the field I would go and study at university was sort of partly this practical thought process that, you know, I wanted to pick a field that is least um, susceptible to ideological. <laughs> well, that's, that's math. You know, and so that's the one. That's the one. And then, of course, the wall came down, and then it was still a good choice because everything was in upheaval, right? right. Everything, like, everything was turned upside down. In those years, when I was in university, mm -hmm. but math was least effective. Okay, okay. Then when I was done, the question is, so what I, I had my math degree, right? Applied yeah. math, I went numerical mathematics specialization. Yeah. Because sort of the pure math, it wasn't my, wasn't my thing, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I always saw it as a tool to do interesting things, 
but not as something that's worthwhile in itself. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and so numerical math was a good good direction. Yeah. And so there I was um, with my degree. And the question is, what next, right? What mm-hmm. next? And so most um, sort of the obvious options were banks and insurance companies. Right? That's what my classmates right. did. And I was like, no, that's not for me. I, I, I do not want to do that. So we're talking about the end of your undergraduate degree. That's right, right? yeah. So my, my undergrad degree, I had my diploma. Yeah. And um, <laughs> there was this, this pivotal conversation I had with my dad where he said, well, whatever you do, don't do oceanography. <laughs> I was like, okay, I will do oceanography. <laughs> and so I've never asked him whether whether he was serious or whether... I, I think he was serious. I think he meant that. He probably just didn't want the competition, right? Yeah, we don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this is my legacy. At, at, at family dinners, yeah. we don't go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does, do you, I mean, have your, have your research interests ever overlapped yeah, a I, mean, I, yeah. I ended up doing my PhD at this institute where he was at too okay right? as you went through you actually you know you did your your undergraduate degree your graduate degrees master's and PhD in Rostock was there ever any desire to go somewhere else moving away was not really something that, that always was a very scary thing to me this okay. idea of moving away yeah and so then after I was done with my PhD, it became obvious that now is the time. You kind of have to move, right? Yes. You can't stay any, any longer um, if you want to continue build yeah. on the PhD, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to continue in oceanography. And so then I, I uh, applied for this uh, postdoc position at the Alfred Wegener Institute in Bremerhaven. So Bremen, still northern Germany, yeah. but um, 300 kilometers further west, basically, from Rostock. <laughs> yeah. And um, moving there was like, that was a big, scary thing for me. And th- that was the, the scariest move, yeah. basically, I ever did. Yeah. And so it was, it was nice because once I arrived there and met new people, made new friends, I, I loved it. Right? It, it, was, right. it, it was such a great experience that it emboldened me to, you know, then even cast the net wider. And from there, you went from Bremen all the way to to Oregon. Yeah. Small town America. Yeah. West Coast. Uh, you know, Oregon is, is nice. Yeah. It, was, it was great. It was, it was a good good place to go to. Good By that time, had you traveled for uh, experiments and conferences and stuff very much? Not much. Not outside of Europe. Okay. So I, that was I, your... Yeah, you moved to that was, America. I remember calling my dad to tell him yeah. that I got the, that offer... And was going to do it. I remember the silence on the other side of the phone, right? Like that was it, that, that was scary for them. That was right. really scary for them. Just having you go so far, go away. so far, right? Yeah. And I'd never been to the to the U.S. before mm-hmm. or North America. Yeah. Yeah. But in, interestingly enough, though, that somehow seemed easier than the move to Bremen. Okay. Well, it's the second one. Yeah, I get it. I get yeah. it. In terms of your work, I mean, you chose a pretty fortuitous. Um, time to study computational methods at all, right? I mean, Mm. it must have been an explosion. Your PhD work was focused on large computational models, right? I think it's difficult to appreciate how complex the systems are that you're attempting Mm -hmm. to model. Mm -hmm. I was was hoping you could tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so I'm interested in sort of biogeochemical modeling, well, that's what I do. And right, just to be clear, that means the biology, the chemical parts of it, and the physical parts of, right. of, of the ocean, which is, yeah. you know, yeah. each one so, of those on their own is probably not perfectly modeled at this point, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and so 
the the physical part that's um so that's it's, it's a field on its own actually mm -hmm. right this physical modeling i mean that's that's where it started well it's, maybe it starts in the atmosphere right so right. you can think of the physical models of the ocean sort of as analogs to the models of atmospheric circulation right atmosphere and ocean both liquids mm -hmm. same physics same basic physics so same basic numerical like computational approaches to to solving those problems on the computer um, and then the biogeochemistry is sort of added on top of that so i so you're absolutely right right we run oh, i run in my group physical circulation models but added on there are the bio we call them biogeochemical components, right? right? But it's basically equations then that describe the behavior of uh, chemical species, nutrients, dissolved gases, right? CO2, oxygen, and also organisms, that plankton. That eat those things and generate those That's things. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's this relatable aspect when you talk about the atmosphere, because I'm not sure how you feel, but I feel like in my relatively short lifetime, prediction of weather has gone from, you know, something people joked about to pretty much spot on out to a few days, day in, day out, all year round, right? I agree. Yeah, it's amazing how good weather yeah. prediction has gotten. It's right. amazing. It's really, yeah. So do you, so did you experience that same phenomena in your field as you've gone from starting out to, to now? Ah, that's a really good question. Yeah, so I... Okay, there has been a lot of progress in biogeochemical modeling since I was a PhD student. But I think there's one really big sort of stumbling block, and that's that we don't have enough observations. It's a little bit better for the physical models, right? but it's really not very good for the biological models, the right. situation. And that really hampers the utility, really, of these right. models, right? There was an analogy about predicting the weather, but in the type of modeling that you're doing, you're looking at predicting things on much larger time scales and larger spatial scales. Can you tell us what, what are, what's the main objective with the type of complex modeling that you do? I, I like to think of it as a whole spectrum. There's, on the one end, basic scientific understanding, like fundamental understanding about how the ocean works, how ocean biogeochemistry works. And then the other end of the spectrum is extremely practical and applied stuff, right? Making predictions for aquaculture, fisheries, harmful algal blooms. I mean, right. sort of re really practical things. And then there's everything in between. And so the whole climate projection angle is, of course, one, one important angle, right? Yeah. I mean, if we're trying to make guesses as to what's going to happen going forward 50 to 100 years on our planet with climate, we need these climate models because we can't observe in the future. Right. right? So the only way we can look forward into the future is by making model predictions or projections. And okay, there's also this angle of sort of mitigation. So A, we need to, of course, reduce the rate at which we put fossil fuels into the atmosphere. But we also probably need to take out what's already in there in a way that doesn't, right. in, in a way that works and that doesn't have other unintended consequences. You know, planting more trees maybe isn't the best way because A, there's only so, so much 
surface area that we can use for mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. B, you know, if, if temperatures continue to rise and um, the forest fires happen, then all that CO2 is back in the atmosphere. And right. so the ocean is, I mean, it, I have no doubt that the ocean is at the core of, if we can solve this CO2 problem, the ocean is at the core. It's the largest reservoir of, of CO2. Mm -hmm. But how to do that safely? I mean, there are ideas for technologies. And so that there's real work to be done to try and, and figure that out, right? Right figure out the technological practicalities, the the potential consequences, yeah. good or bad, we need to know, right? We need to go in having that knowledge and also sort of acceptance, societal acceptance. Right. Yeah, certainly, I mean, when I look at the work you do, I, I mean, I sticking with the analogy, it's very easy for us to test the accuracy of the skill, I think people say, of our weather predictions, you know? The temperature... The wind, these things. How do you do that with a with a biogeochemical model? I mean, how how do you test how accurate your prediction was? What do you have to go out and measure? Well, so it's not done as rigorously and thoroughly as it should be, in my opinion, because we don't have enough observations. Right, going out on a ship, as you know, is a big effort. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. You can only have so many cruises yeah. um, at a time, and so you can only make so many observations at a time. By ship, so I'm actually really quite excited these days about where the field is going because we're at the cusp of getting a wealth of more biogeochemical observations because autonomous platforms mm -hmm. and sensors have progressed in the yeah. past decade at, at an amazing speed. So we now have the technological capabilities to measure the ocean in a way that we've never been able before. Yeah, it's a game changer for biogeochemical modeling, I think, mm -hmm. having this, this source of observations. And when you say observations, I mean, what are the specific things that you're hoping to get more measurements of? Is it is it capturing little parcels of water, or is it measuring uh, the critters in the water the, or the chemicals in the water? I mean, this question has been posed to me over the years. Well, what does a modeler need? What do you yeah. need? Well, I need as much as I can. I need everything. Yeah. So what can you give me? What What can we get? And so there are sensors now that are robust and small enough and proven to work on autonomous platforms. And I'm talking here about gliders and floats, profiling floats, yeah. that's going to be put on this global uh, program that populates the ocean with profiling floats. Mm -hmm. so there are six biogeochemical sensors that are going to go on these right. floats. So just for some context, I mean, these things have always been measured in the ocean. Well, by always, I mean, you know, in the relatively recent hit past. But you'd have to go out and collect some water and do some chemistry, I guess. The big change now is you're going to do that in the ocean. You're right. So that the big change is that we don't have to take a sample of water anymore physically and put it into a lab and then measure. We can instead put the measurement device right. in the ocean and... And it moves around even. Right. And um, and then the data is transmitted via satellite. So we have it in quasi-real time. I mean, it's fantastic, yeah. really, yeah. right? Yeah, so you mentioned that you're going to be building a huge number of these floats. And it's not just you, but it's a series of global partners as well, right? It's yeah, a it's a big global initiative. I mean, it builds on something that the physical oceanographers have, have um, been able to get off the ground mm -hmm. 20 years ago, the Argo program. Can you so, tell us a little bit about, about what Argo floats are? Yeah, love to. So Argo floats are 
devices the, the size of maybe a nine-year-old child, I would say, <laughs> um, that have the ability to make itself heavy or light. So that allows the float to profile up and down the top 2,000 meters of the ocean. Sensors that are on the float measure properties. And while the float is at the surface via satellite telemetry, the data are then transmitted. So we can obtain in real time measurements of ocean properties in the top 2,000 meters throughout the whole ocean, basically. Mm -hmm. Basically, the goal was to put 4,000 of these floats out in the mm -hmm. ocean. And that's been going on for the past 20 years. I mean, it's the major source of information based on which we know how the ocean is warming and the rate at which it is warming yeah. and, and at which depth levels it's warming. So these core Argo floats, they have sensors for temperature salinity, and pressure, so you can for depth. We're now talking about adding six more sensors. Okay, what are those? Can you run us through? Oxygen, mm -hmm. nitrate, pH, and then the bio-optical ones, backscatter, proxy of particles, chlorophyll fluorescence, proxy of chlorophyll, and light, useful for many, many things, right? Yeah. Primary productivity calculations, but also an indirect proxy of, of the amount of stuff that's in the yeah. water. Yeah. And how big is the program that you'll be launching here at Dow and, and relative to the global program? So the global goal is to put a thousand biogeochemical floats out. Okay. And we are um, fortunate enough to have secured funding for 40. Wow. Okay. So. And how many, how many nations are involved? How many partners um, are involved? Uh, all the major nations are involved. Like yeah. it's, it's quite amazing, Argo, uh, in, in terms of the international coordination. Mm -hmm. So one other thing I should point out is that this data is freely available. Not only is it available in near real time, but it's freely available to anybody. Any, anybody can get this data. Just on a website. It's somewhere. on a website. Yeah, there are multiple websites mirrored so we don't lose yeah. anything sure. because some data center loses yeah. power, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's amazing. And I did, you know, look at your CV and I noticed you kind of excel at a lot of different committees, both for publications, for standardization, and now this this international collaboration. So what's your what's your secret? How do you, how do you make it palatable? Ah, I don't know. You know, I think it maybe goes back to the fact that I enjoy that probably the most about my job. Okay. You know, I enjoy working with smart people mm -hmm. on interesting problems. Like that's that's what drives me. Sure. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate in being involved in committees with, like, really smart people trying to do interesting things that I believe in. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it's something you like doing. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you ask, what's the secret? I, I think that is the secret. You right? just have that, to like that, it. That you like it <laughs> yeah. and that you're... That you're not, you know, I'm, I'm never in it for myself. I feel I'm in it for something bigger that's good for the community. Mm -hmm. And that also, of course, includes listening to, I mean, I, I don't think I have the best ideas. Mm -hmm. I like to listen to good ideas yeah. and, and, um, maybe I have a good idea from time to time too. But I mean, the real power is in putting our good ideas together yeah. and in the sort of the tension, right? The discussion. Yeah. The interesting thing is, you know, coming back when you talked about, um, the political ideology growing up, you want to stay right in the middle. And here are a couple examples where the scientific ideology, you want to be out out on the end of the curve, right, to, to make change. Yeah, and I mean that was a, that was liberating, right? This this right. this um, survival strategy of just don't stick out, right? Mm -hmm. 
keep your ideas to yourself and just blend in that that's really not not a particularly nice nice thing to to have in your head sort of to, to constantly self-censor right it wasn't yeah. a good thing so i mean the biggest so the, the biggest benefit if i sort of think back to to that the biggest benefit of breaking out of that um ideological system was the ability to to speak my mind and and um that, yeah. that's what i value the most and obviously has been a recipe for success in your in your career i think so yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this was our last regular episode of season four. So thanks for tuning in this fall. It's been a pleasure speaking with all of our guests. But we do have a special interview with an alumni guest coming up on November 12th. So don't miss it. I'll be interviewing Dr. Matai Memin, a graduate from Dow Chemistry who led the development of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Visit dow.ca slash for all the details. I'm your host, David Barkley. Thanks for listening. Sciographies is brought to you by Dalhousie University's Faculty of Science and CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Our producer is Nicole Killowy. You can learn more about sciographies at dal.ca slash sciographies.